If you like what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast, consider subscribing to one of our newsletters like The Daily Ledger or The Weekly Ledger. You can learn more and sign up at securityledger.com slash subscribe. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, episode number 124. I don't think we've seen an attack on the software supply chain that infiltrated as many people with potentially one target. Open source software is the beating heart of today's knowledge economy. It allows individuals and organizations to assemble software applications more quickly and far more affordably than ever before. But a string of recent incidents has highlighted the vulnerability and fragility of widely used open source libraries and code, which are often maintained by just a single individual. In our second segment, Brian Fox, the chief technology officer at the firm Sonatype, joins us to talk about the recent compromise of the EventStream open source project and the growing risk of open source supply chain attacks. But first, President Emmanuel Macron took to the airwaves last night to address the French people about a string of long-running worker protests that have rocked Paris and other cities in recent weeks. Like so many recent social protest movements, the so-called Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vest protests, protests began on social media platforms like Facebook before moving to the street, where they've led to riots, acts of vandalism, and scores of arrests. Now, similar protests have popped up in other neighboring countries, including Belgium. Still, there's no clear leader of the LFS movement, nor do the protests seem to have a clear agenda. So what's fueling them? Our first guest suspects that online campaigns by outside agitators may be one factor. Baptiste Robert is a software developer and independent security researcher who lives in Toulouse, France. He's been analyzing messages on Twitter, capturing more than a quarter million English language tweets that use the French Gilets Jaunes hashtag. His surprising finding? None of the top 10 accounts pushing conversation about the protests were French. Beyond that, all of them were associated with far-right nationalist politics. In this conversation, I asked Baptiste about his study of the Gillette Jean protests online and also his experience attending one of the protests in Toulouse. My real name is Baptiste Robert. My main job is uh, Android developers, but I also independent security researcher. The Gilets jaunes protest, the Yellow Vest protest is, is a big thing at this moment in France, so it's very interesting and I was interested by the network, the social network part of this movement because people, uh, this movement has, has been created on social network and uh, to be more specific on, on Facebook. But there is some interesting side also on Twitter and I was interested to see how non-French people see this event from the outside uh, because for non-French people it can be complicated to understand this very new movement. And so what I decided uh, last, last Tuesday, I decided to uh, save all the English tweets with the French ha- hashtag Gilets jaunes uh, in order to see if some people were trying to uh, manipulate uh, the opinion of the non-French people. What I saw, so yesterday I started to analyze what I captured and I captured uh, 256,000 tweets uh, in English with the French hashtag. 
on when I analyzed the top 10 of the most influential person, I saw that none of these person uh, were French and all this person has a specific agenda and uh, in majority these guys are far right or far left and they want to push their own agenda and they want to show that Paris is on fire and uh, this is a civil war, which is not really the case. Now, you actually went out to a protest and were like talking to people who were there and so on. I mean, what was your sense just as a um, French citizen of the actual physical protest, how people found themselves there and what their agenda was and, and so on? This is a highly disorganized uh, movement. In the middle, when I was uh, in the middle of the protest, uh, people uh, want, wanted to go to different directions. Uh, there was no leader at all. So they don't know what they are doing. And uh, some, a few minority of these guys are here to fight with the cops and they want to break everything in the city just, just because it's, it's fun. Uh, so yeah, they have a specific name too. What are they called? The Cassel or uh, Casser? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Casser is a word. Uh, is a word uh, to say uh, someone who is breaking something. Yeah, right. But but other than that, there wasn't there wasn't a a clear agenda or leadership or organizing idea behind the people who were protesting. They were all just kind of out there with different issues. Well, there is a, the main revendication, which is a good revendication, is uh, some people at this moment in France have a job, but they don't manage to uh, to live correctly. They mm -hmm, want mm -hmm. to be uh, paid correctly in order to, to buy gifts to their kids and go to the restaurants. And yeah, a living wage. Yes, they want to raise the minimum wage uh, because 1,200 euros it can be very complicated to live at this moment in France. So you did some uh, analysis on the, the Twitter graph of uh, some of the English language, non-French accounts who were promoting this uh, gilet jaune protest, and, and you found they were not French and that they tended to be, you know, kind of far right leaning uh, accounts. Were there any explicit in your from what you could tell, explicit connections to Russia or some of the influence type operations that we've seen in you know the UK around Brexit or uh, in the US during the presidential election here? At this moment, this is a big question. Uh, French media is wondering today uh, if there is a relation uh, with the Russian. According to what I'm seeing on my side and according to my, uh, my tweet capture, I can't see a clear, an organized operation from Russia. I can't see that. Uh, but what, what I'm able to see is that this yellow vest protest is clearly a good opportunity for all the European nationalists, all the alt-right and pro-Trump account uh, to push the fact that political parties in Europe are doing a, a bad job and uh, they have to, to be more nationalist. <laughs> And, and what's your sense of how people are being exposed to this? I'm guessing those those folks out protesting are not sitting there following anybody's Twitter feed. They're probably not on Twitter. So how are they coming across yep. uh, this information and getting coordinated enough to put on a yellow vest and go march? I don't think uh, Twitter has a big role in the yellow vest protest. 
for sure, because everything is happening on Facebook. I think the work done by these influential people on Twitter is more, uh, the goal of their tweet is more to show to uh, the outside world that mm -hmm. everything is wrong in Paris, but they don't want to influence the movement itself. They want to uh, modify the vision of the of the movement for the rest of the world. Did you interact with any of these folks who were retweeting and and amplifying the Gilets Jaunes uh, tweets and yes. messages? Yeah, you did. The number three uh, in my top ten, uh, which is uh, breaking and live. This is a breaking news Twitter profile. Uh, on this guy, like to ret retweet and to publish some uh, very violent and graphic video about Paris protest. And uh, this guy's this guy was pretty proud to to tell me. No, I don't need a source for a video. Uh, I'm just describing what I have, uh, what I'm seeing on the video, and that's all. And I managed also to find that this guy uh, changed his bio last year's from uh, pro-Trump account, real news. Uh, in his bio, mm -hmm. uh, he wrote uh, real news with uh, American flag pro-Trump account, mm -hmm. and each view from that to a breaking news account. Do you think the folks there understand that, that there are others, outsiders, non-French people, kind of promoting and amplifying these words and views? No, for sure, because we have some issue with uh, to speak English in general. Uh, French people are really not good to uh, in English, so a lot of you're French, pretty good. <laughs> don't speak. <laughs> I'm trying. Better <laughs> uh, my French. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of French people don't speak English, so they don't really care about uh, other people tweeting uh, in English about education. Uh, they don't. They just don't care and don't see that. I mean, the report suggests that the protests have gotten smaller in the last couple of weeks. But um, what do you think is going to happen with this? Is this going to be a something that blows up and then fades away? Um, or is this going to be a sustained uh, protest movement? This is clearly a key moment uh, today because uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, will talk uh, to the nation at 8 p.m. today. So he will uh, announce, make some announcement and uh, depending on how people will perceive uh, this announcement, announcement, the Yellow Vest protest will die on, uh, on it. Mm. Do you think he's going to mention foreign influence as, an, as a factor? No, 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 I don't think you so. You don't think he will? No, no. Because? Uh, because it's not a good political uh, argument for him. Uh, because people are angry because they don't have enough money. Uh, they think all political, all politics are, are bad. So they and the corrupt and they they don't really care about what is happening outside uh, the border so they want more money on that all. so they would perceive that as him belittling or making little of their of their pain and suffering rather than being sympathetic or empathetic with them yeah. yes yeah interesting yeah. They, they will see they will see that uh, as an excuse uh, because if you if macron is saying uh, this uh, this movement uh, is caused by uh, foreign influence, uh, people would say, uh, 
you <laughs> you kidding nah, there is really something uh, behind that Baptiste Robert thank you so much for coming out and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast thank you we were speaking with Baptiste Robert he's an independent security researcher based in Toulouse France up next Open source is an indispensable part of the knowledge economy these days, allowing organizations to assemble new applications more quickly and cheaply than ever before. But all that open source use and dependency also comes with a risk. Heartbleed woke up the world to the risk posed by undetected security vulnerabilities in popular open source repositories. More recently, a string of supply chain compromises of open source projects has highlighted how widely used but under-resourced many of them are. That makes them prone to fraud, manipulation, and abuse. Our second guest, Brian Fox of the firm Sonotype, said the recent takeover of the EventStream open source project on GitHub by an unknown hacker is a case in point. That compromise, which appears to have been aimed at undermining the security of the copay Bitcoin wallet, is an object lesson in how sophisticated attackers are looking to popular and under-resourced open source projects as a way to push malicious code into thousands or even millions of downstream applications. To start our conversation, I asked Brian to talk about the event stream compromise and how attackers were able to get access to and compromise the open source project's code. Brian Fox, uh, Chief Technology Officer at Sonatype. So what appears to have happened is is new developer, somebody who had no history on GitHub, showed up and started making some minor improvements to an otherwise dormant project, um, a dormant but still heavily used project, and that project was EventStream. And so this developer showed up, started making contributions, um, and then, you know, asked to uh, either take it over or at least be given, you know, the ability to publish new versions of this particular project. That in of itself is actually pretty, pretty normal. That's how you would get involved in nearly any open source project, right? You show up, make some contributions, earn a little bit of credibility, um, and, and then you move forward. So that's kind of an interesting social uh, engineering attack, if you will, on, on an open source project, but that's what happened. Then apparently part of the execution of the attack, they had created a new module called Flatmap Stream, which had basically encrypted code in it that did some interesting things. It was basically set up to patch code uh, from another library in, um, I guess, the Copay Bitcoin wallet app or platform. And so this flat map thing seems to have been a delivery mechanism to patch the code to be able to steal the credentials for a wallet and therefore presumably steal the coins inside the wallet. So this new module was created and then added as a dependency to EventStream. So therefore, anybody who was already using EventStream uh, when they picked up the next version, which is a default behavior within NPM, you know, unless you've gone, gone out of your way to lock down the versions, it will check for new versions. And as soon as one is available, it will pick it up. So this unknown author published a new version of EventStream that contained this dependency, the flat map that had the payload in it. So that's basically how this this attack went down. Okay, and just to define terms, so uh, EventStream is a, is a is a component, a sort of plugin or library for this NPM, um, which is kind of a open source package manager. Just explain the the relationship between those two elements. Um, NPM is a package manager that allows. Uh, node developers or JavaScript developers, really, of any any kind, to more easily fetch 
packages and the dependencies required for those packages to run. And so EventStream just happens to be one of those uh, components available in the repository. The, the target seems to have actually been very specific, which was this Bitcoin uh, payment platform. Yeah, the, the story continued to evolve, right? And, and uh, it seemed to be confirmed that Copay, the company that has this Bitcoin wallet, was in fact using EventStream and at some point apparently did have the affected version deployed, meaning anybody with wallets in that platform potentially at risk. And, you know, so they have instructions wow. telling you, consider your wallet compromised, move wow. your Bitcoin to a new one and things like that. That's kind of interesting because this is n not unlike the super micro attack where somebody attacks an entire ecosystem with maybe one or two very specific targets in mind, hoping, you know, in their case that motherboards find their way into the NSA or someplace juicy. That would be the alleged super micro attack, Brian. <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves. The, the alleged super micro attack, right? This is basically the same thing. I don't think we've seen an attack on this on the software supply chain that infiltrated as many people with potentially one target. What we tend to see are more things like people do people stealing general things like SSH keys or trying to insert remote code exploits. You know, those things have been happening a lot over the last year uh, with an increasing. Um, um, you know, frequency. This this is unique in a couple of ways because it seems that the attacker social engineered their way into this project. You know, they they put a lot of care into trying to hide their tracks within the the code because the code that was in GitHub did not include the malicious code. So the the source that ended up deployed to the repository, the binary, if you will, was not the same as what was in GitHub. So you had to actually go look inside the package you were downloading. Um, then you might notice that it has things in it that weren't in GitHub, right? So this was this is one thing that I've been talking about. It, it it shows evidence of more of an APT, advanced persistent threat type of behavior, where they're in it for the long game, right? They're not just here to exploit something and and um, you know pull off a, a quick convenience store robbery kind of thing. And, and that's unfortunately also the trend that we see these things becoming more and more sophisticated over time. Uh, explain how it would be that the um, actual download and the uh, viewable code in GitHub would, would not be the same, uh, that the, the, you would be looking at code, but that would not correspond to the actual binary that you were downloading. Good question. The way these things get into the repositories, this is really true for any of the package systems, is that there's a build process, right? Uh, in Java, for example, you know, it's going to take the source code, turn it into Java bytecode. It's it's the bytecode that tends to get published to the repository, and it might have a link you know, and the metadata back to the source so somebody could go look at it, but there is not an easy way to directly correlate the, the compiled binary back to the source. Now in JavaScript, sure, right. the binary is the source. They are usually one and the same, except it's pretty common for people to minify and do these kinds of things. So it's also true that the source, if you will, for JavaScript that ends up in these repositories is different um, in subtle ways from from the repository. Like, in other words, you couldn't often mm -hmm. just literally mm -hmm. diff the two things or do a checksum match of the two things. Um, it's a much more complicated problem. You'd end up having to compare abstract syntax trees and, and things like that, which are imprecise at best. So it's not surprising that the code is different, but it just, again, speaks to, you know, thinking ahead to make it, you know, that much harder to see. And I saw some reports earlier that also said that the the author had republished um, yes. a version to the repository after the fact that removed it. And so it was sort of this instance where they put it out there for some period of time, anybody fetching this new version, 
which probably is a lot of people, um, pull it down. They now end up with that affected version cached. Then the, the, the attacker goes back and changes it. So somebody poking around trying to do investigation sees nothing here. Right. They basically covered the tracks. That didn't make a whole lot of sense. It just seemed to be, you know, OK, maybe they they saw enough um, proliferation of this. But actually, if their target was copay, it kind of makes a little bit more sense if they were somehow able to observe and they might as a copay user to see what was actually being deployed, you know, because the JavaScript's probably running in your own browser, you could see it. If they in fact saw that it now had been in copay, that would be the time to turn it off because your target is now infected. There's no reason to continue to spray it. Um, so, so that behavior this morning was very unusual, didn't make sense, but now I think it actually makes total sense. What's kind of shocking if you're not an open source developer, I guess, or, you know, working in a lot of open source projects is sort of the handshake culture that really lies underneath a lot of open source projects, even ones like EventStream that are really widely used and components of just countless different applications, that underneath all this is really just a system of kind of volunteers and relationships, most of which are not even face-to-face -face relationships. And, and, and that's kind of what the actual target of this attack was, right? Yes. And, and so this, this is something I've been talking about for a while now. I wrote an article back in, in May that was on Forbes and I've been speaking at conferences about this because um, I've seen these patterns. I've seen the, the trend, you know, it, it sort of started out, there was a, a couple of big ones where there were a bunch of typo squats components with confusingly similar mm -hmm. names to actual popular ones put into both NPM and then a, a few weeks later into Python. And then there was some more things that came out. I felt like it was Groundhog Day. I kept having to update the blog and talking to the press and saying the same thing. So, you know, over time, I started really watching how these things were unfolding and, and how they were escalating. And I started talking about this um, because I think there's, there's sort of two problems. The first problem is most consumers don't have an appreciation for how the effect of making it easier to publish and consume new projects to these ecosystems has had the sort of unfortunate side effect of kind of dumbing down what's actually going on. Right. That's the inevitable side effect of any technology that makes things easier. And so I think the mental model that many people, especially people, um, executives, people in charge have of open source is more like the guys that created Apache HPD or BSD. Right. Graybeards, really professional people with lots of experience, a high focus on security. You know, they were creating enterprise grade open source software. The fact that it was open source was secondary to the fact that it was enterprise grade, right? And I think I think predominantly a lot of people tend to think of open source in that vein, that these are experienced people with well-run processes. And certainly the things from the forges like at Apache and Eclipse, they have still good uh, software development, configuration management practices that make these things much less likely to happen. It doesn't mean that they can't. Certainly, the process makes it a heck of a lot easier than than you know what amounts to a spear phishing email campaign. And so that's the first thing that people need to understand that the average module created in some of these ecosystems, especially JavaScript, tends to be one man bands, uh, high school college yeah. kids doing things on the weekend who may not have had security training, who aren't really thinking about those implications. And that's sort of the second part of the message that I've been trying to get out is, hey you guys, that's great. You're creating these new things. You know, developers are motivated by users. You want to get users. Open source is an awesome way to do that. But you know what? You need to think about the amplifying effect of that. If you get compromised, if your software or your, 
your own credentials or your keys or your laptop gets compromised. It's not just you and your personal data that could be at risk. It's all those users. So you're in it to create open source to get all these users. Make sure you're not getting them attacked, right? Because it could be a hospital running this software. <laughs> People could literally die. Yeah. This is serious stuff. And so I think it's really the twofold. The consumers don't really understand that they're dealing with less sophisticated publishers. And the publishers don't really yet have an appreciation for what happens when their stuff goes bad, right? And and everybody needs to up their game because um, this is this is real stuff. This little side project you have could find its way into millions of projects. Um, overnight. Well, I mean, and in the case of EventStream, I think it was saying, you know, there were what two two million downloads of this um, of this particular library. Do we know how and why it it is so popular? I mean, I I don't know. I'm not personally a user of it. Clearly, it does something people find useful. But you know, at the same time, uh, a few years ago there was LeftPad, right, which was literally a piece of code that padded a string with spaces to the left, right? Um, or to the right or something like that, right? It was like something that you would write in, in hell. I think there. I wrote that. Yeah, just <laughs> in hello world in college, right? So it was this module that did this like three lines of code that anybody should be able to code. And yet, you know, when the developer had a TIFF and they took it off of the thing, it broke, you know, millions of websites, which just showed that like the average developers these days, not only the public, but the consumers. Pulling the, just you know, lazy, man. Capricious code. Just freaking yeah, lazy. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Yeah. So, so EventStream either is doing something really handy or just became so popular that everybody was just cutting and pasting it as a dependency. Right. And just to clarify, the individual who was maintaining it was not deriving any profit from it, even though it had millions of users. That's correct. And, that, and that's fairly typical, right? Yeah. Is there any like best practices around this type of scenario? So, you, you know, you're, you've got some open source project, you've been maintaining it on your own, you've got millions of users, uh, all of a sudden somebody's wanting access to be able to, you know, modify it and publish it on their own or within the community? Is there sort of any street smarts about that or savvy about that? Or is it really just up to the individual developer? Well, I think it, hopefully those individual developers hear about this and think twice next time. Um, do you really know this person? It's kind of like, you know, somebody emailing you saying, hey, I need to hide a bunch of money, right? We're all, we all know to be suspicious of that. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been a maintainer of large projects at Apache. I've been maintainer of individual projects. When when you're a maintainer of an individual project and, and you're not working on it anymore, anybody that comes along to help looks like a savior, right? <laughs> because it's like, great, especially if it's really popular and you don't have a reason to work on it anymore. Handing, handing off the reins, I can see how that would be highly desirable but you have to you have to really be careful and like i said it starts with thinking about your users what is this person going to do to my users and and what are they going to do to my credibility right because there have been cases where um somebody's credentials had been supposedly allegedly compromised and then you know malicious components published under the name of the original developer well how do you know how do you know that wasn't an excuse, right? So there have been instances of people's reputations actually being dragged through the mud because they couldn't prove it wasn't them. In this case, that doesn't appear to be, you know, the situation, but, you know, somebody else could be the next one who who has their 
their their credibility dragged through the mud because of their carelessness. In terms of the consumers, right, we talk about this a lot. Make sure you really need the dependencies. Don't just use things because they save you two lines of code. You're just inviting more problems. But more specifically, organizations need to have that complete manifest uh, of the bill of materials of all things used in their applications, because these things will happen, whether it's an intentionally malicious attack or a bug that leads to an exploitability, it will happen. And, and, you know, as an organization, you need to be able to respond quickly, which starts with answering the question, am I affected? And if so, in which applications? And it's shocking how many companies can't answer that short of months of grepping through operational systems. It's just, it's really scary. Um, and, you know, we as consumers come to expect that from anybody producing any kind of physical good, right? Our cars, our planes, our, um, you know, food supply. We expect that when something happens that a recall can be done. Yeah. The scary truth is the software running on those said machines in a lot of cases don't have the same diligence as the physical parts that went into them, which is kind of shocking. Um, and, and certainly, you know, within organizations who... Um, who, who never produced a physical good. It's not even something that they're doing in a different part of the company. They're just not doing it at all. And, and that's really scary too. And so that makes all of these people um, a much bigger target for these supply chain attacks because it's much less likely to be noticed. It's much less likely to be remediated even after the rest of the world knows about it. After the uh, Heartbleed vulnerability came out, I know Google and some other companies pledged money to um, help shore up some of these critical open source projects like OpenSSL. I guess maybe one thing that this would suggest is that there's a very long tail of what you might consider uh, important open source projects yeah. out there, uh, you know, those with millions of subscribers or users. And my guess is that the money is not trickling down to many or most of those those projects in the long tail. I think you're talking about the critical infrastructure project, right? And I think they, they figured out you know, even with really popular ones, it can be really hard, especially when there's only a few maintainers to get them to really put the energy into up leveling the engineering to get it to the point where it needs to be. That in and of itself is a problem, but it only scratches the tip of the iceberg, especially in ecosystems like NPM and, and Python and, and, and yeah. the like where there's so many modules and there's it's moving so fast. You're never going to be able to, you know, identify 10 projects and go fix them because it's not going to matter by the time you do. They're not the ones that are used anymore. And so this is why it's more about changing the behavior, changing the behavior of the consumer and changing the behavior of the publisher to try and help close these gaps. So I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, Sonar, you, you work at Sonatype, the, uh, you know, Sonatype State of uh, Open Source Security report came out, Soft State of the Software Supply Chain report came out, open source vulnerabilities up 120% year on year, uh, suspected or known open source breaches increased 55% year on year. Doesn't suggest that the trend lines are pointing in good directions with this particular type of problem. Um, how do we get in front of this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's about being able to respond, like I said, because I think th there are things we as an industry need to do to help close these doors, but they're always gonna, um, there's always going to be more doors. One of, the, one of the most shocking statistics I had seen earlier this year was that in, in 2016, the worldwide illicit drug trade was estimated to cost us $435 billion, right? That's how much the bad guys were making. Mm -hmm. um, that same year, cybercrime was making them $450 billion. So $15 billion more than the worldwide <laughs> illicit drug trade. Wow. Now, now, 
think about that for a moment. When was the last time you saw one of these attacks on the nightly news? Right. Never. Right. right? But how much time do they spend talking about the drug wars and, yeah. and, and, uh, heroin and all those kinds of things that are going on. We talk about it all the time. And over two years ago, cybercrime was already a bigger industry and it's predicted um, to be six trillion by 2021. So we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. It's only going to get worse. Who's the Pablo Escobar of the cybercrime world? You know, who the heck knows? You know, Brian Krebs knows, I guess, <laughs> right. but he's, he right. might be I the mean, only one. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. There are many of them. Right. And some of them are nation states. Right. Almost certainly. Right. Um, and, and that's that's the thing. These are not script kiddies looking to exploit uh, latent vulnerabilities. That was, you know, the the war we've been fighting for the last you know many decades. Now we're starting to see them, like I said, start to actually create directly uh, attackable things. And, you know, when you introduce um, cryptocurrency, as was related to to today's vulnerability, um, it becomes a whole new interesting dynamic because what that allows them to do is directly monetize the theft. Mm -hmm. You know, before people would say, my application has nothing of interest in it. I'm not dealing with social security numbers or credit card numbers. And, and so I'm not at risk. Well, you know, guess what? If you've got CPU cycles or your, your visitors have CPU cycles, those things can be turned into mining currency. Mm -hmm. And we've seen attacks in this supply chain doing exactly that. Those guys aren't going to get caught they, because when people get caught, it's when you pop your head up and try to sell sell the illicit goods, mm -hmm. you know, social security numbers and credit card numbers. Well, here, guess what? They've got the money; they're going to spend it. Game over. So it's it's like stealing cash versus stealing TVs. And you take all of those trends together. That's why we're seeing this increase. Is it too much to say beware of you know using components from single maintainer projects? You know, sort of a variation of you know many eyes make all bugs shallow. That that you should be preferencing or weighting your use of libraries and components based on how many people are involved and in actively maintaining that code base. Yeah. I mean, certainly those are factors. Um, you know, if you try to limit yourself to anything that doesn't only have one developer, you're probably cutting out a significant chunk of useful things. And then the frameworks you depend upon may in fact be depending upon those libraries. I think NTP, the network time protocol server, the default thing was one of those critical infrastructure projects. I believe that was maintained by primarily one person, right? So one person doesn't necessarily mean it's a pet project that's insignificant. Um, and so that, that strategy doesn't work very well. But you know, having that list, understanding what you have, being able to respond accordingly when it happens is the first step. So many people haven't even taken that step. You know, the next step starts to look like, you know, locking down your dependencies such that you're not grabbing something as soon as it hits the repository. Wait a couple days, right? Who needs to have the latest version of a component the moment it hits the streets, you know, uh, your, your release cycles on average aren't that fast. Wait a couple of days, let some other people run into the breach, give it time to, to be discovered. Um, many of the, the supply chain attacks we've seen over the last year were discovered within, you know, about three days. But unfortunately, there have been a few that have lingered out there for several months. This, this happened to be one of them. Uh, the Python SSH key one, I think, was another one that was out there for a while. So it's not a perfect thing, but you might have cut your exposure from 30 different incidents down to three or four, which is still a big step forward, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it starts with being a little bit more diligent about what dependencies are going into your applications and, and teaching your developers to think carefully about, do you really need to include that? Or would it just be safer to write those three lines of code <laughs> uh, and not have to worry about it? <laughs> Brian Fox from Sonartype, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
We were speaking with Brian Fox of the firm Sonotype about the recent compromise of the EventStream open source project.